So Money Episode 163, Kathy Braddock. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You know, I'm really proud to say that one of my closest and dearest friends joins me and us on So Money today. Her name is Kathy Braddock. She is a 30-year real estate industry veteran and one of the top, top real estate entrepreneurs in the country. I'm so excited to have her on the show with us. A lot of you have been writing in, wanting to learn more about real estate. Here is your chance. Kathy is currently a managing director at William Ravis, New York City. It's the 100th office of William Ravis's real estate mortgage and insurance, the largest family-owned real estate company in the Northeast. And during her esteemed career in real estate, Kathy helped form and build some of New York's most distinguished real estate firms. She co-founded Rutenberg Realty, which grew from the ground up with zero agents into the sixth largest residential brokerage in the Big Apple. You know, I quote Kathy extensively in my first book, You're So Money. A lot of you have that. And in it, she gives spot on advice for first time home buyers. She, for me, has been just an ongoing consultant, friend and consultant when it comes to purchasing my own pieces of property. So if you're interested in becoming homeowners or selling your home, Kathy's got all the intel. And I just love this woman. She was born and raised in New York City which I always find exciting, you know, to meet people who call New York City their birthplace. In addition to being a wildly successful businesswoman, Kathy is admirably independent, a world traveler, a mom to two awesome young guys. And I first met her when I was a producer at New York One News. I booked Kathy on the nightly business program regularly, and she was and continues to be my go-to source for all things real estate and lately all things life. She is my surrogate big sister in the city. And we learn a lot from Kathy in this interview, including whether buying real estate is still a part of the American dream. I ask this, I mean, flat out, is it really part of the equation anymore? The financial passport, she says, all of us need to qualify for buying a home these days. And it has changed, that passport. The anatomy of that passport is a lot different than when it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And why we shouldn't assume the bank is always right when pre-qualifying us for a mortgage. Really? Even still today, banks are maybe over-lending? Might be. Here is the wise Kathy Braddock. Kathy Braddock, welcome to So Money, my dear friend. I've been wanting to have you on the show for a while now, so this is like just finally I'm so excited. Welcome. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. And uh, I just love everything you've been doing, so I'm so (laughs) thrilled to see everything that has come together for you. Thank you. And you've known me since the very beginning of my career. And as I was saying in the introduction before you came on that I would book you on New York One News regularly when I was the producer there as our go-to real estate expert. Uh, Real estate is one of those topics, hot topics, especially at the time. It was like 2004, 2005, 2006. I mean, can you imagine? Things were uh, a little lot different then. Very exciting time for real estate. And then it was a not so exciting time for real estate. Um, 
And but still, uh, throughout all of that, you've been a constant great, great advice, Kathy. You you yourself have built really a real estate empire, a real estate entrepreneur, I call you. Because you really, you know, there are people who get their real estate license and then they become brokers. And you just really took it to level, if, if that's level one, you took it to level 25. I mean, starting businesses uh, and now your partnership. Um, tell us a little about your partnership with William Ravis. Yeah, Bill Ravis, um, my my business partner, Paul Purcell, and I have known Bill for about 20 years. And he has built an amazing operation. Um, he's started his company 40 years ago, and they have 120 offices up and down the Northeast. It's the largest family-owned real estate business in the Northeast, and Bill was always looking to open up in New York City. And finally, the time was right for all of us, and so we opened his office about a year ago in New York, and it's been a wonderful experience to be surrounded by what I consider the uber entrepreneur of the real estate world. It's really exciting to see somebody who has built this kind of business, and his kids are in the business. He has already identified the five-year-old grandchild that he is going, who he knows will be running it one day, and Hmm. it's so fun to work for somebody whose brain works so quickly and makes decisions quickly and has built this. So it's, it's at this stage in my career, it's exciting to be learning so much from watching and being part of the organization. Well, we're also learning, I think, from the marketplace is that millennials, and a lot of my audience are younger, younger adults, younger professionals, or new families. They want to get into real estate, but they're um, kind of just, I don't know, they're, uns- they're unsure about it because they've seen what's happened in the last five years, they're, they're, untru- they're distrusting, they don't think they can afford it, all of those things. Uh, where are we right now as far as psychology and real estate? Where are people's mindsets, especially the first-time buyers? Are you seeing that there is a slowdown or, a di- or a, um, uh, maybe a, an unwillingness to, to dive in and buy a piece of property? Well, it's interesting. I think that, you know, in America, home ownership is still the American dream. Is it really? Yeah, it it still is. I mean, in New York City, we've never been really a city of owners. We're actually a city of renters. So if you look from a New York perspective or a big city perspective, you get a little skewed. But in the rest of America, you know, people want to own their own home. Um, It's something that we aspire to. And so I think um, people have been burnt, but they have also been burnt by the stock market and other financial institutions. So I think what you're saying is true. I think people are wary. I think millennials are are wary, but I think they're wary of a lot of things, not just real estate. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think for the first time home buyer, there are certain steps that they can do if they are slightly concerned that will actually ensure a better process and possibly a transition into purchase. And there's just some good guidelines they should be following. Let's talk about those guidelines. How has the process gotten harder or changed since, say, just five years ago when loans were being given out like candy? or maybe it was a little bit longer than five years ago, six, seven years ago. Uh, it's, it's harder now, I think, right, to qualify for a good loan, hopefully. It, it is, be. exactly, hopefully. Um, you're absolutely right, but that is actually one of the first things anyone should do when they're thinking about buying is get what we call your financial passport in order. 
And that's talking to a bank, talking to a mortgage provider, and really figuring out what you can afford. If you want to buy and you can get a loan, interest rates are historically low, as you well know. So it is a good time to buy in terms of very, very cheap money. Um, so we like people to absolutely figure out what they can afford. But the caveat is whatever the bank tells you, you know, they'll qualify you for, be careful because you have to take into account all of your lifestyle expenses. So remember, if you really like taking that vacation, if there's something special you're saving up for, you need to put those numbers into the equation because the bank or the mortgage company's not going to do that. And you never want to end up owning something, and we call it sort of being um, house poor, right. where you don't have enough money left over to do the things that kind of make your life more interesting or that are special for you. So you still have to really be careful that you're not overspending um, and coming out being unhappy, even though you're owning something. I say that all the time. I actually, when I got pre-approved for a loan a couple of years ago, I was floored how much the bank was like, yeah, you could leverage this much. Mm -hmm. I was like, if I actually did borrow that seven-figure mm-hmm. <laughs> mortgage, I would be eating tuna fish out of a can and lighting candles in my house because I wouldn't be able to buy right. any furniture or light bulbs. Right, because they're not taking the bank and mortgage doesn't take that into account. And then the other thing that a lot of people really, I think, don't spend enough time on is what kind of loan you really do want because, as you know, there's so many different kinds you can be taking. And I have found it's less about the monthly nut and it's more about your own psychology and what you can sleep with. And, for instance, I've always personally had a 30-year fix because I want to know, if I assume I hold it for the rest of my life, I want to know what my number is going to be. I sleep better at night. Yeah. You know, other people are much more, you know, they, they'd rather pay less, but, you know, sort of they're okay taking on the fluctuation. And I think people don't spend enough time thinking about what's comfortable for them. And I think that's a big component of it as well. Who should not be buying a home? Anybody who's not going to stay for at least four years. Someone who does not be in, none of us have a crystal ball. But if you really feel that your job is not in jeopardy, but, you know, if you feel you might not be stable at your job or you might want to leave your job, if your personal life is really in flux and you think that could change, um, and everybody should do a rent versus buy analysis anyway and really look to see where the numbers are. I mean, remember in America, one of the biggest benefits of home ownership and a mortgage is the deductions. So you have to really look at, again, the rent versus buy, the deductions you'll get with the purchase, and see where you're going to come out. Um, but there's a time in everybody's life when there probably isn't the right time to buy, so there shouldn't be any pressure on people to do it as long as they really analyze what's right for them. And then they always you know, should have this wish list, want list, and must-have list. And none of us get everything but you should at least get some of it when you do sort of start putting your foot in the water. Some people, let's get on the other side of the equation, who want to sell their home. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've thought about this. I'm not going to work with a broker. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You didn't, this is the last thing you want to hear. Why? Well, that's somebody yeah. like, oh, but, you know, for news, that's somebody, that's 
someone saying, I think I'll operate on myself and I think I'll write my own will and I think I won't eat in a restaurant ever again. I'll cook all my own meals. Well, and- okay, let me just give you my story. I I work with a good, a great broker. I think you actually recommended him to me. I did. To sell my studio in Manhattan. And it's such a, heart, a hot market here that literally what he did for me, which was very helpful still, he took photographs and put it online. And within a day, we had an all-cash offer. Mm-hmm. And he didn't even show up to the signing, so uh, to the close. So I'm like, I just gave this guy 6% and to put photos up on, um, you know, the, on the internet and for something that, you know, basically sold itself. Um, I'm not saying that that I'm, – I'm, I guess I'm just bitter. <laughs> but like who, who priced it for you? He did. Okay. And I thought he was too high, actually, and he came down in price. Um, can you believe it? I told him to come down in price because uh, I just didn't want it sitting. And I thought and – he, and he agreed, and it sold like – so it was collaborative. Okay, but he was guiding the process, obviously, on some level. And was there a board package involved? There was, uh, I think because the uh, the buyer actually lived in the building, and mm-hmm. so we were able to bypass a lot of that. He, the, the realtor was very helpful in getting me movers, though, at the last minute, um, because the buyer didn't want it, didn't want the furniture. I thought he did. And then mm-hmm. like the day before the close, they're like, you need all the furniture out. So he was very helpful in getting me a last minute moving, a moving company. So I appreciated that. But, you know, to hand him a five-figure check – for something that I felt, you know, was not worth the five figures that I gave him. But um, I know that's that's a very unique situation. So Well, not- I mean, not, you know, things do so quickly. But part of that process is the ability to price it correctly and then to negotiate and to make sure that it is getting out to the entire brokerage community. Because in New York, you know, 96% of our market is co-broke. So we're really not trying to reach the consumer. The broker, when they're selling something, is trying to reach the brokerage community and making sure that, you know, they bring up, that the buyer is brought by another broker. But I, I understand what you're saying. When it sells quickly, the broker hasn't done a good job. When it lingers, the broker hasn't done a good job. <laughs> well, in San Francisco, I will tell you, I have friends who recently moved out there. People do not who are renting don't really go through brokers because it just, as soon as they put their offer on Craigslist or whatever the site is, it they have five people knocking on their door. The, the market there is so tight. But yeah. realtors are reinventing their themselves. They're, again, they're being entrepreneurial. They're, they're offering uh, some like uh, concierge services for people who are moving out there so that they're not just helping you find a home, but really helping you analyze neighborhoods and really, I think, stepping up in a way that makes them needed in a market that can feel like, you know, decisions are made in a heartbeat. And if you don't act fast, right. it's over. Well, you know, the job of a broker, in my mind, is is to price correctly, to market and to negotiate. That that's That's really what a broker has to do on the sell side. Um, and it sounds as much as, you know, as much as it went quickly, and I understand what you're saying, it seems like though that was sort of accomplished. On the buy side, it's to really figure out what you want, where you want to be, and how much you want to spend, and what really will work for you. And it's to intuit a lot of what the buyer wants. So 
some, you know, there's this awful phrase, and I really think it's awful in the real estate community. They say buyers are liars, and that's really not true. Buyers just don't understand a lot of the time what you just were saying in San Francisco, what the scope is and what their choices are. So a good broker's job is to really say, let me introduce you to this. I, I heard that you might not want it, but, but let's explore that option. Right. Anticipating you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and, and not being afraid of the customer. And too many times the customer and the client in real estate are driving the process and they're not, and the broker is not taking charge. And, and truly most people spend more time picking a restaurant or a caterer do than they do the right real estate broker. And that's a shame because the really good ones are fantastic. But like in any profession, there's good ones, mediocre ones, and not so good ones. Um, but they are all different, and the good ones really are worth their, their weight in gold. So interview brokers before working with them. Um, for anyone on the podcast who's interested in getting their real estate license, believe it or not, this is something that I have contemplated. I think people people sometimes ask me, like, what would you do, Farnoosh, if you weren't doing the work that you're doing? And I honestly think that I would be doing something in real estate because I it's the first section of the New York Times I read every every sun, every Saturday. I, 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 I stalk the real estate blogs. You're one of my best friends. You know, I think that this is something that I would do for fun. And for someone who wants to get into real estate now, and like, you know, now these shows like Million Dollar Listing on Bravo mm-hmm. makes it, make it look so glamorous. What would be your advice? How do you carve a niche as you did? Great question. Um, it, it's really like in any industry, look what the niche you've carved in, in yours. My goodness. I mean, you know, you're the Susie Orman of, of the world at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, it, it's to be it's to be an entrepreneur to and to be unique and to and to realize that it's you yourself and I that is 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 the product, and you are your own brand in real estate, and you have to very much create that brand and protect that brand and grow that brand. You will be under a real estate firm as our agents are at William Ravis, but they each and every one is their own brand and they offer something different to the community. And your sphere of influence are going to be your best customers, the people you know that you connect with. It's a contact sport. So even though I think we have 36,000 brokers in New York, you know, you, ha- you can't think of it that way. Like in any industry, you just have to realize what you have to offer is special and unique and valuable and create a brand around yourself and market yourself like you would a product and you will build a business gradually, but you will build a business. You know what hard work it takes to be an entrepreneur. Oh yeah. And sometimes right? I feel like I'm not working hard enough. Like there's so much education that I've yet to take on, but um, every day is a new day. Right. It is. But you have created a brand and that's exactly what a real estate, a person who wants mm. to go into real estate does. They need to create their own brand. Well, Kathy, let's transition now to so money Q&A. You are, you know, in addition to being this real estate guru, I I admire you for, you're a world-class traveler. You've, you, I remember you telling stories when you, after college, you just like went out and were very independent from a very young age, grew up in New York City. Maybe that had something to do with it. You had this sort of risk-taking take on life. So all of that as the context 
And you're very good with money. You always treat me to dinner. <laughs> you're very generous. Um, what is your financial philosophy? If you had one, if you had to distill it, what do you? What, what's your money mantra? You know, um, I think you know, being a woman and 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 having a career. I, I, and I don't know if this is true of your generation, but, you know, I think on some, and I went to an all-girls school in the city, et cetera, I think women on some level run a little scared. I don't think men in particular run as fearful as women do when it comes to money, and I think it's, I, I don't know if that's true. Have you ever, has you encountered that at all? Well, I was just talking to a woman. I don't know if I can generalize, but I think anecdotally I have experienced that, I've experienced that feedback where I have women telling me that they're, they don't like to look at the numbers, it makes them feel uncomfortable, they don't, they're not aggressive with the stock market. Men, even if they don't have no clue, We'll mm-hmm. pretend like they know everything. So right. it's there are pros and cons to each to each person's uh, outlook. I think on money. Yeah, and it's interesting because I grew up, um, you know, around uh, you know m- m- my father's family. My father was in Wall Street. My mother was very interested in the stock market. My earliest memories of sort of you know focusing on money were the uh, you know my mom during the day would call her her stockbroker and ask about a quote, and then if we'd be walking around. She'd walk into those places where the ticker tape used to be running across, you know, and she'd look at her quotes. And then at the end of the day, we'd get the evening newspaper. There really was one that came to close the prices. So I was always sort of conscious that, you know, there's this investment part of life. There's this work part of life. Um, so I think my mantra is that there's always a way to make money. And, and I really believe that. I, I think in the core that I am very entrepreneurial and that I think, you know, I see something and I think if you turn it this way, we can make money doing it this way or that way. You know, even if it's cleaning houses, creating a cleaning service. I think people shouldn't be scared that there's not a way to make money because I think there is always a way to make money and there's always a need out there to fill. And I have had this conversation with you. I think it was around the recession I got laid off from the street.com and um, we were talking in general just about, you know, like I would be willing to go and clean those houses. I have right. no shame. I have a master's in journalism unrelated to domestic drudgery, but I would do it because I've seen what it takes to bring home that paycheck from hardworking parents to make a life. And I don't know if everybody would do that, but I do think that that's a I like to, I'm bragging about myself here a little bit, but I think that's a good quality to have is like to be able to roll up your sleeves and do what needs to get done. That's very encouraging for of you to say that there's always a way to make money because I'm looking now at my bank statements and I'm thinking, oh my God, I have to like pay for this re- construction project and I have a name. Mm-hmm. Like I have those days where I'm like, the money will be gone <laughs> before I'm going to yeah, be able to make it. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that's, yes. And I think that there is, oh, and, and that's what I don't, you know, and, and this, I don't mean any disrespect, but I do think that if you just say, you know, there's now you can drive Uber and you can, you know, do all these sort of entrepreneurial things to, to get in the game, to start to make some money. And I, you know, you hear these marvelous stories and Bill Ravis is included, you know, how he created this business or, you know, someone comes over from Russia and, and has, you know, all the taxi licenses in 20 years. Yeah, those those are such inspirational stories, 
And not everybody is going to succeed to that level, and not everybody needs to succeed to that level. You just need to succeed to the place that is comfortable in your life. And I think everybody has that ability. I, I really do. I just talked to an entrepreneur on the podcast, Kimra Luna, who's going to be airing soon. She went from being on welfare to mm-hmm. earning $900,000 in her first year of sales as an online marketing um, entrepreneur. And she has three kids and a husband. And they they put they invested $5,000 in this business. They took out a credit card. And you know what they told each other? What they said, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? We don't make, we don't make money and we go on back to our jobs at Target. Right. And that was okay. You know, they're like, we will be fine, you know, but we want to try this. And it, I think that sentiment is so powerful just to say, there's more where that came from. Let's take a chance. Um, we're healthy. We're able-bodied. There are other resources in life than just money that you can leverage to get ahead. Well, that's just it. And and if you just, if you panic over the money, I think then panic sets in. And I don't know about you, but I, I know you pretty well. And I can tell you, and this is really true, I can be just as happy at a five-star hotel and I can just be happy in a very basic place as well. You know, it, it money is a lot of the trimmings, right. but it doesn't create the life. And, you know, I, my, you know, I have a relatively small apartment in the city and I used to tell my kids all the time, it's not how big it is, it's what happens inside it. Oh, I love and, that. And I really, and I mean that, and I think that in this city, you have to keep a perspective because it is easy to look around <laughs> and say, oh my gosh, look, you know, you see it, 1,400 Birkin bags, whether they're real oh, or not. Please. But, you know, and, and that's not, I mean, and you, you've heard this and I know this, you know, buying it doesn't make you happy. There's happiness really comes from many other things besides purchases. Totally. Money is a lot of the trimmings. I'm going to quote that. I'm going to use that later. So what would you say is your greatest money memory growing up? You talked about the ticker tape and the the evening paper. So there was a familiarity with investing in stocks, which I think was probably so critical to you know, having shaping your perspective on money as a kid, what would you say is like a really uh, crystallizing moment in your childhood that had to do with money? Well, my mom was very um, independent. You know, she she always managed her own. You know, she had and some in her father died young, and she had some money I guess left to her. So she was always very careful about how she managed her money and her stocks and. So she was a strong woman in that way. So I think very much she was a role model. You know, she wasn't one of these women who you just said she doesn't know the number. She knew every number. <laughs> she knew every receipt. She checked every bill. She paid every bill. So I was just surrounded by that a lot, um, which I think was actually a very good thing because it, it was good modeling for me. And then um, through the years, as you went to college and started working in real estate. Let's talk about failure and success. And I'm curious to know if you had a failure and success in real estate. Um, we, you know, it's funny. Uh, we built a, a real estate firm, my business partner. I went into business uh, about eight, 10 years ago with some partners. And, you know, it, the failure was in not feeling like we had, it, 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 
it's hard to go into business, I find, with more than one person if it's a it's a joint venture. So that was tricky for me, and I learned something about myself that is probably not the best approach for me. It could be good for others. Um, and then the success was the same thing was we got a great offer to, to sell it, which was sort of fun. And, you know, anytime you build something and somebody wants to buy it, that's always exciting. So, you know, they're sort of the, it's funny. They came out of the same event. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But going back, would you have started it with the same same number of people or no? No, yeah. no. And that's just a learning experience that I had to, to, to go through. Um, yeah, that is, and probably not the best for most people to have too many partners. Yeah. In personal life and professional life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about um, a financial habit, Kathy? What's a what's something that you practice regularly that you think helps to keep your your money situation in check and your finances in a good place? I every day look at my bank account, my and I put most things on on the credit card. So every you know, I look at my credit card statement every day. I look at my bank balances every day. And I run numbers in my head a lot. You know, if I do this, that's fine. And I think the the tricky thing, and I'm, you know, much older than you, I'm 58, but the tricky thing, I think, is for people to save and, you know, be frugal, but also not to the point where you're not enjoying life. There's a balance. And I know a lot of people who spend, 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 and I know a lot of people who don't want to spend anything because they're saving it for that time. Right. And. And and I like to think that maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, sometimes I spend more than I should, but then maybe I pull back. It's like overeating for a weekend. <laughs> um, because I think, you, you know, unfortunately, you never know when your last day is going to be. And, you know, my mantra is sort of, I don't want to, I don't want to sit there and go, would have, could have, should have. Yeah. You know, I want to know that I've done some of the things I want to do. Well, sure. I mean, I think that I just talked to another guest on the show that said money should be enjoyed. Yeah. And not to be interpreted as spent entirely till the last dime is gone, but enjoyed in that you're you're doing what you want to do with your money to, to to enjoy today and your future. Right. And I think we all work hard. And if we're not going to enjoy it, and one of your questions that I was thinking about when I was reading this stuff was, you know, what do I do? I, I like spending my money on travel, food personal care, food, wine, and my kids, you know, I mean, that's sort of, and, and in that was not a lot of purchases, you know, right. It's, it's, I, I spend money. I guess I enjoy my money being spent on experiences. I'd like to say, well, that is the best way to spend your money because that actually has been proven to increase happiness. As we say, money doesn't buy happiness, but when you invest it in experiences, recounting those memories and, relishing those experiences, I think that actually does, they've, they've studied it. It does increase happiness levels. So there you go. And you've actually transitioned us before I had the chance to. Thanks for steering this ship, Kathy. Um, so what would you do? So you were answering one of my questions, which is, you know, what is your guilty pleasure? And so those, all those things, uh, good food, good wine, spoiling your kids, but in moderation, what would mm-hmm. you do if you want a mil- $100 million tomorrow? The first thing I would do is? I would do what I'm doing, you know. for for I, I love what I'm doing. It's fun. It's entrepreneurial. I love building businesses, and I'm doing that. 
Um, you know, when I thought about it, I probably get an apartment with some outdoor space. <laughs> that is something I would do. Um, and I put stuff aside for my kids and, you know, potentially grandchildren that I don't have. Um, but in a smart way, you know, so they, they're not, not motivated. Right. Um, but other than that, and I'd probably give to, give to some charities. I, you know, I think the greatest thing you could possibly be is a philanthropist if you can be. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I really kind of like my life. Yeah. Happy with I like your life too. Yeah. Um, okay. So the one thing, finish the sentence, the one thing I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is? Well, when I had kids, I would say uh, childcare, but now I'd say travel. Travel. And you went to Turkey last year, right? Was it last year? A couple of years ago. A couple yeah. of years ago. Last year is all of, of like I, I can't remember any of last year. It was like I had a baby, I had a book launch. It was like no. it, it happened, but it kind of did it. I started a new job. You, so yeah, wasn't going too many places. But and I mean travel, even in just getting out of the city, change the scenery. I find that very motivating. Going up to my brother's house in High Park, going down to Florida, you know, changing up my environment for me is a very healthy thing. Yeah, for sure. You already answered your biggest guilty pleasures, multiples of them. Yes, I have a few of them. (laughs) How about this one? One thing I wish I'd known about money growing up is? Is not to, not to worry about it so much that, you know, I'm capable, I'm accomplished. I can, I will know how to make a living and, um, and to really enjoy life and enjoy the, the, the time we have here. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because charities that uh, that mean something and charities that actually tend to give most of it, if not all of it, to the charity. There's something called the Damon Runyon Foundation that supports cancer research, and 100% of those donations go to cancer research. Wow, those those are the kinds of charities I look for. Yeah, and you can go to GuideStar. There's websites out there that will show you the percentage of revenue that actually goes to the cause as opposed to like, you know, offices and exactly. people's and salaries. When I donate. Uh-huh. And last but not least, I'm Kathy Braddock. I'm so money because... I know you. Oh, no. <laughs> Come on! I am so no. I'm so, no. I, I think really, Farnish, what you have built and created is so interesting, and you are very, very inspirational and motivating. Oh well, thank you, Kathy. It's because I surround myself with people like you. You know, they say you are only the average of the five people that you spend your time with. And so I have the privilege of spending my years here in New York with you. The priv- like the real, the luck, the sheer luck of landing that job at New York One, and booking you and that transpiring into this great friendship. And um, I, I, I thank you. I'm so money because I know Kathy Braddock. The feeling (laughs) is mutual. My pleasure. Kathy, thank you so much. Everyone check out Kathy Braddock. We can learn more about you at williamravis.com, right? Yes. Okay. We will do that. We'll put all of those links on the site and wishing you a great rest of your summer. See you soon. Thank you. See you soon. Thanks for 
thanks so much to my guest, Kathy Braddock, for joining us on So Money today. To learn more about her and her firm, hop over to ravis.com. That's R-A-V-E-I-S.com. All this information over at somoneypodcast.com, where we've got the transcript and the comments from this episode and all previous episodes. And while you're there, if you're maybe like, I got a thinking, you know, I got a question for Farnoosh about money or about life, whatever is on your mind send it to me. Hop on to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh, and that's where you can submit your question. And I typically will answer it that following weekend. And it doesn't have to be a question. It can be a comment. I like to hear from you about all things. And if you'd like to win a free one-on-one money session with me, I give away one per week. And the winner is selected from the iTunes review section. So if you want to Connect with me one-on-one. Hop over to iTunes and leave a review for this show. It doesn't have to be super long. It doesn't even have to be a five-star review. I've given away these to people who've left less than five. I won't give it to you if you've left a one-star review, but, you know, let's be honest. I I like the people who like me, and we're going to probably get along much better on the phone or on Skype as it is. So leave a review, and hopefully I will select you for that one-on-one. And I thank you in advance. And thanks again to my guest, Kathy Braddock. Wasn't she great? So go out there and buy a home with confidence, y'all. Hope your day is so money. Money.